1 Peter chapter 4. And our text tonight is verses 12 through 19 of that fourth chapter. When you find it, put your finger there in chapter 4 and let's go back to chapter 1. Because the first, the theme of 1 Peter is suffering. Okay? The theme of this epistle is suffering. And uh, he, in his opening remarks, gives us the, uh, where this letter is addressed. It's addressed to aliens who are scattered over a humongous uh, area of, of territory, five enormous uh, areas of the world. They're dispersed all over the world are these Jews of the dispersion, and they're suffering in an unfair way. What they're suffering is really unfair. They didn't deserve what they were enduring. The emperor empire is a madman. Um, uh, God means nothing to this man. The Romans had many gods, all spelled with a little g, and he had no concern about the God of heaven whatsoever. And because he had no concern about the God of heaven, it mattered not to him to take somebody's life. It was of no consequence. And so he took lives in a brutal and horrible way. He was a murderer, and he murdered his way to the throne. He followed in a long line of murderers, and he passed on those traits to his successors. It was a horrible time in that world to be a Jew. Uh, it's a bad thing to suffer for any reason. It is doubly bad to suffer uh, suffering that you don't deserve. I want you to get this picture. It's a true story. A man gets up one morning. He's gonna, he lives in New Jersey. He rides a commuter train into New York City. He's been sick all night. He has a, he has a virus, a bug. And he wouldn't go into work except he has a some clients that he has to see. And so he gets up and he dresses and he is just so nauseous he can hardly hold his head up, but he's got to go to work. Well, see, so he gets on the commuter train and the train lurches into New York City. And as it lurches its way along, he gets sicker and sicker. I mean, he just is so nauseous, he's got to vomit. I mean, he's got to spit up. And this train pulls into a stop and picks up people, and as it stops and as it jerks forward, it's just making him sicker and sicker. And so it screams in to a, to a stop outside the city of New York. Now, standing on the boarding ramp is this man in a double-breasted suit, very dignified, well-dressed. He has a briefcase in his hand, and he's standing there, and this a thousand times, so he hardly even notices that the train is coming in. He's looking at the Wall Street Journal catching up on the morning. And as the train lurches toward him, this guy lurches to the exit. He can hold it no longer. And just as the doors open, this guy raises his head to get on, and what he's seeing is a man standing right in front of him, still on the train with his mouth wide open, and he just empties the contents of his stomach upon this poor guy standing on the ramp. 
He's frozen in time now. And the train door slams, the computer train slams shut, and lurches on, this guy standing on the, frozen in time. And the guy who is recording this says, I could read his lips as the train left him standing. Why me? I know there have been days when that has happened to you. Why, why me? In a much more traumatic and serious way, these Jews scattered in the dispersion were crying in their suffering, why me, why us? Now if you're taking notes, I want to give you some practical things that we need to understand about trials or suffering. And I want to rely on the next little book over from 1 Peter, and that's James. And I want to give four practical um, matters concerning trials. The first is this, that it's common for Christians to encounter trials. Don't let anybody ever tell you that when you become a Christian, all your problems are over and you'll never experience trials. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. And I can tell you, I got, good, I got some bad news for you. I guess it's good and bad news. Everybody has experiences trials or suffering, and you will not go a year, perhaps even a month, without experiencing some kind of trial in your life. It's very common for Christians to experience and endure suffering. Number two, trials come in various categories. Now, I've just written some down here that I, that I thought of. There are financial trials, relational trials, there are physical and emotional trials, there are trials that are tied to home and to school and to church and to work. There are trials that are private and there are some that are very public and there are some trials that are because of someone else's failure and sin and you're caught in the backwash of that, of their failure, their sin and it's like a pebble, the, 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 the ripple of their failure, their, their sin reaches out to impact your life. Number three, trials put our faith to the test. There's something about trials that, brings us, that bring us back to the basics of life. Something about trials that just bring us back to focus upon the things that really matter, what these young people sang about tonight. Things like prayer and faith and God and church, something about trials that bring us back to the basics of life, the things that never die. And number four, without trials there could be no maturity or endurance. In fact, trials give the best opportunity for witness. They are a platform upon which God can prove how faithful He provides for our needs. They are a platform upon which God proves how faithful He is to meet our needs. It's this, the greater the need, the greater is the testimony of His ability to provide. 
not a couple of weeks ago on Wednesday night, we got in a discussion about this, and I used a very personal illustration. Uh, um, Dennis Huggins was here that night, and we talked, you know, very personally. He, was, he shared in the conversation that, that I have heard, I have talked to people who live in another city, other towns, that have just kind of heard about him. And they've heard about his uh, horrible disease, this cancer of, uh, that he has in his brain. And, and, and I was talking to a guy who lives in another city, and I mentioned Dennis Huggins' name. He said, oh, I've heard about him. He must be some kind of a man. And what has happened is, is that this, this great crisis in his life has become a platform upon which God has been able to, to, to prove how faithful He is to meet our needs. And the greater the need, the greater the testimony, and the bigger the audience. And so Andre Crouch puts it like this. He says, if I never had a problem, I would never know that God could solve it. I would never know what faith in God could do. But through it all, through it all, I've learned to trust in Jesus. I've learned to trust in God. Through it all, I've learned to depend on His Word. For if there were not trials, there would not be maturity, and there wouldn't be this great opportunity to, to, to give witness to the goodness of God. Now with these comments, I want you to turn to chapter 4, verse 12. Here we are. And notice how he begins. He begins with this, with this word, Beloved, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you. This, these remarks are addressed to the beloved, to believers. Now, what he says or writes and what I'm about to say has has little to do with the unbeliever, with the lost person. It doesn't really uh, communicate to that person. It doesn't really, is not really relevant to that person. Do you know the Savior? If you do, these words are just for you because these are words are addressed to those who know Jesus Christ as personal Savior. That's why He calls them the Beloved. These are just for you. Now, how do you react? Or what is the best way, what is the fruitful way, the productive way, the positive way to react when suffering comes, and come it will. Two things. Number one, he says, don't be surprised. The first, thing we, how, first way we respond when trials come is, man, I, don't, I didn't think this would... I can't believe this is happening to me. I can't believe God would allow this to come my way. I can't believe something like this would happen. Don't be surprised. Think of your life as a schoolroom, a classroom, and I don't know of any classroom doesn't have a test somewhere in it. All through the process, your educational process, um, there are tests. I mean, teachers know ways to give tests. I mean, there are pop tests and midterm tests and final tests and open book tests. And, I mean, tests that don't even have a name. I mean, there are all kinds of tests. And, 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 and your knowledge is graded on the basis of the examination. Now watch this. You look up Webster's definition of test, and this is definition. It's an, a critical examination, observation, or evaluation. 
Now, the wonderful thing about the test that God sends to this classroom that you live in is that He gives you the privilege of grading your own paper. You can see yourself. Now, watch. God does not send a test into our life or allow a test to come into our life so that He can find out how we're doing. He sends a test or allows a test to come into our life so that we can see how we're doing. And we can grade our own paper and we can determine how we're growing, how we're getting along with regard to maturity. Four years ago, this test came to my life and this is how I responded. But now this test has come to my life now and I'm much more able, better able to deal with it and I can grade myself on the level of my own maturity. Robert Leitner, who was a professor of theology at Dallas Theological Seminary, was in a terrible plane crash. He was burned so badly, his wife went in to see him and didn't even recognize him. He, she said he looked like a charred mass of flesh. And he lived through this horrible experience and, and survived it. God miraculously healed him. He wrote in a little article I read recently this quote, I learned things I didn't know I needed to learn. And so we have these tests so that we can find out what we need to learn about God, about ourselves, and His ability to provide. Don't be surprised. Number two, verse 13 says, But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, here it is, Keep on rejoicing. Number two, keep on rejoicing. And you're saying, and I'm saying, you've got to be kidding. You're talking to me about suffering and you're telling me to keep on rejoicing? Well, there is a couple of reasons why I could make that statement or the passage could make that statement. None. Well, the first is, is because it is in suffering that we enter into a closer partnership with Christ. Paul said, I want to know Him, and I want to share in the fellowship of His suffering. Now the fact is that you will never experience the impact of the cross until you have gone through the trial, and you will never really appreciate the feeling of rejection until you have been rejected. And it is in the midst of this trial that we experience a fellowship, a partnership with Jesus Christ that makes our relationship with Him something unique and special. I want you just to take your New Testament, if you will, and just give it a little flip back to the book of Acts. I was sitting here uh, reading this passage and I, I, I noticed something that I did not know before I sat down here. And I, and I want to let you read with me, beginning at, um, at verse 28, 38. Let me, let me tell you a little background here. These Christians are stirring up problems, stirring up trouble. And so they're arrested and they're brought before the, the, uh, the Sanhedrin. And Gamaliel, who is kind of leader of the Sanhedrin, um, is, is saying, you know, you better leave these people alone. If they're of God, you can't stop them. If they're not of God, it'll die of its, you know, of its own initiative. Just let them alone. And so they decided that they would do that, and so they took his advice, and after calling the apostles in, they flogged them and ordered them to speak no more in the name of Jesus, and then released them. 
Verse 41, so they went out, so they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. I love this translation, it puts it like this. They rejoiced that they received the dignity of the indignity. You get that, I love that. They, they received the dignity of the indignity. What he's saying is this, is that having endured something for Jesus' sake, they found a connection. They connected with Jesus. That's a, uh, a popular term now. They, had the, they connected with Him in a way that was unique. That's how you can keep on rejoicing. And the second reason you can keep on rejoicing is because it earns for you a crown of glory. Now, if you're following in your outline... There's some things to remember in verses 14, back to 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 14 through 18. Number 1, verse 14. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Something to remember, number 1, is that in the midst of suffering you have an opportunity to draw upon maximum power. You have an opportunity to draw upon maximum power. Now the scripture describes this, this day that, that Jesus was baptized. It says that, the, that a dove came and rested upon him. And that dove was emblematic of the Spirit of God and was that which thrust him out into the wilderness and empowered him for ministry. And what Peter is saying is this, we were eyewitnesses to the Spirit of God resting on Jesus and we knew that in, G in the Spirit of God, Jesus had this divine, heavenly, godly power. Now in the midst of suffering, he says, understand this, that the Spirit of God rests upon you and you have the ability, you have the privilege, the opportunity to connect with maximum power. Number two, verse 15 says that there is some suffering that is deserved. Now a person is foolish if he uh, abuses his body and then wonders why he suffers. And a person who disregards the law of God and suffers for it, he has no reason to be um, critical or bitter toward God. I mean, there are some natural consequences of, of, of disobeying God's law. And some suffer because they deserve it. Number three. Most suffering should in no way make us feel ashamed. Let me read verse 16. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not feel ashamed, but in that name let him glorify God. I, I've, I know, I've noticed that, that there are some people who almost apologize if they need help. And they have this kind of a self-imposed guilt if they if they have to ask for help. Oh, forget that. It, you should never feel ashamed because you suffer in most instances. Number four, usually 
suffering is timely and is needed. Let me read verse 17. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Sometimes suffering, most of the time, suffering is timely and needed. There are times when God just has to purge things out of my life, and the only way He can do that is to bring a trial into my life. And sometimes God has to do that with a church. He has to purge a church, so He brings that a trial through, you know, to, to pass. And that's a timely and needed thing in order to purge from our life those things that, cannot, that not, do not please God and cannot honor Him. All right, number five. No comparison in what we suffer now and what the unrighteous will suffer later. And I'm not saying that with glee. I'm saying that with sadness and sorrow. Now, I know it's tough to be a Christian. I've heard, I've heard people say, man, I mean, you talk about hard life. It, to, you know, to live for Christ requires everything. It's, it's tough it's to, to be a Christian, to, to take a stand for Jesus. It, it's a difficult thing, and that's true. Let me tell you something. The way of the transgressor is hard. And the suffering that comes to the unrighteous is... is a suffering that this kind of suffering you and I will endure in this life cannot compare with that. And so he says in verse 19, Therefore, commit your way to the Lord. Commit your soul to God. And that word commit means to make a deposit. It's exactly the same word that Jesus used on the cross when he said, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. I make a deposit of my life with you. Now, here's what I'm here's here's the bottom line. Before the trial comes, before the suffering comes, before the heartache and the and the and the pain comes and come it will. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. You and I need to make a commitment of our life to him once and for all. And deposit our eternal destiny Deposit the f tomorrows and the todays and all that has happened in the yesterdays and we make that deposit into His care and we live on the basis of that trust that we have in the Lord. Before the storm comes, the foundation has to be laid. Now there are two applications. Let me give you these and we're through. When trials come, Remember, God is faithful. He'll neither forget you nor abandon you. When trials come, remember that God is faithful. Hudson Taylor once said, it doesn't, how, it doesn't matter how great the pressure. It matters where the pressure is. Does the pressure come between you and God or does it just press you closer to Him? When trials stay... They come, if they stay, remind yourself to do what is right. Look at what he says in verse 19. Therefore let those also who suffer according to the will of God entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Now oftentimes when trials come and suffering comes, we want to do what is wrong. 
Sometimes we want to react bitterly and angrily. Sometimes we resent it. Sometimes we do our best to, to weasel out of it. Sometimes we even turn to ways to dull the pain. When, and, and, and the author says that when trials come, just keep telling yourself there is a right way to live. I'm going to live that way regardless of what happens to me. I'm going to live that way regardless of whether life is good as I measure good or bad as I measure bad. There's a song by Brian Leach from the movie The Hiding Place, this moving graphic story of Corey Ten Boom. It goes like this. In a time of sorrow, in a time forlorn, there is a place where hope is born. In a time of danger, when our faith is proved, there is a hiding place where there is love. There is a hiding place, a strong, protective place where God provides the grace to persevere. For nothing can remove us from the Father's love, though all may change, yet nothing changes here in a time of sorrow, in a time of grief, there is a hiding place to get relief. In a time of weakness, in a time of fear, there is a hiding place where God is near. And so the psalmist said, Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to thee in a time when thou mayest be found. Surely, in a flood of great waters, they shall not reach him. You better, get, you better make the deposit before the flood comes. Because when the flood comes, it's too late. Thou art my hiding place, says the psalmist. Thou dost preserve me from trouble. Thou dost surround me with songs of deliverance. Let's pray together. Our Father, we pray that you'll surround us tonight with your love and protection, with a sense of your love and forgiveness, deliverance. May we make our commitment to thee, for I pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Tonight I want to give you an opportunity to respond publicly to maybe the leadership of God concerning a decision about your life. Maybe you want to come tonight to make that deposit into the hands of a faithful Creator, entrusting your eternal soul to Him, all that is involved in your life. While we stand to sing, we invite you to come.